friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great show for you this first week of Easter. I hope that Easter is bringing you all the joy and blessedness that you were hoping for during our long Lent. We have Carlos Ayer with us. He is a professor at Yale, author of many wonderful books, including Waiting for Snow in Havana. He's a Cuban-American who has a rich story, and he's out now with a new podcast called The Christian Mysticism Podcast. So welcome to the show, Professor Ayre. Thanks for inviting me. I want to give a little thumb sketch, thumbnail sketch of your biography so that our listeners understand. Sure. Um, so you were born in Havana in 1950, and at 11 years old, you came to the United States in something called the Pedro Pan Airlift. Around 14,000 children were brought to the United States, unaccompanied minors, as we call them now. You came with your brother, without your mother and father, and that's at a very tender age, the age of 11. Spent some time in foster homes. Eventually, your mother was able to come and join you, but your father was not, and you made a beautiful success of your life um, through many, many difficulties. And all of these things, and eventually becoming a professor at Yale University, where you still are in 1996, and, um, and have written wonderful books. And one of them is called Waiting for Snow in Havana, which is a memoir of your experiences as a child. And, and it goes into your adulthood as well. That book to me, when I read it right after you published it, was very special because I'm also Cuban-American and it explained many things about myself and my culture to me because I grew up, I was born here right after the exile. And the way that you describe the utter loss of home and culture and family and the destruction of the revolution, of everything that one holds dear, it impacted you differently and much worse, right? Because you were you were left orphaned in a sense for many years. But it was the tender way that you describe the losses of those years, which I grew up in without knowing what they were because I hadn't experienced them myself, but I was growing up in those emotions that made a huge impression on me and explained many things to me. So thank you, Professor Ada, for that beautiful book. Yeah, the funny thing is, you know, I wasn't supposed to write that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, I did. I, 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 I honestly say every time I speak about this book, because I wrote it in the year 2000, right after the Elian Gonzalez uh, story unfolded in a very negative way. He was sent back to Cuba. He was claimed by the Cuban government with this, this constant refrain, every child deserves to be with his father, because they were sending him back to his father, with whom he had never actually lived. So... The hypocrisy of, of that just drove me insane because it wasn't just my father who was not allowed to leave. I know of thousands of other cases of uh, parents who were not granted an exit uh, permit and families that were intentionally separated. So I went crazy and I wrote this book because no newspaper, magazine, or news organization replied to any of my letters where I was trying to clarify this point. But, but, you know, this 
claiming that the boy needs to be with his father is utterly hypocritical. Nobody replied to my letters. So I, I went nuts and, and wrote the book. Uh, and I'm glad I did. <laughs> my own grandfather died alone in Cuba because he couldn't join his family. And yeah. and it was, and, and as I said, when I was a little girl growing up in this culture of loss and abandonment and, and being separated forcibly, I didn't understand a lot of the sadness around me and a lot of the... A lot of the nostalgia. I feel. I know now what I was. Now I think, as an adult looking back, I understand a lot of the emotion and the trauma um, that I grew up in. But your book was for me an illumination in that sense. You don't. Um, you 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 can't get that from reading the culture and reading the books, as as you say, and then the magazines and and the way that the United States uh, reflects Cuba back to us and our experiences is very false and it continues to be so to this day. Yeah. And I get, I've, I've gotten thousands of, of emails and letters from readers. And uh, the funny thing is, uh, Cuban or Cuban-American readers, this is what they tend to say. 99.9%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not surprising you. <laughs> is, is they say, the, the, those born in Cuba who fled say, thank you for telling my story. And Cuban-Americans uh, born here. They say one of two things. They say, thank you for confirming all the stories that my parents or grandparents told me that I never believed. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> if, if it's in print, it must be true. And then others, though, a good number of, of Cuban-Americans have written saying, thank you for telling me the stories my family found too painful to tell me. Yes. So now I know, they say. Kind of like what you just said. You know, now I understand uh, my family's peculiar sadness. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Can I share something with you? I often tell people ask me, what are you? Because I live in Miami and everyone here is from somewhere else. Where are you from? And I say, I'm Cuban. And they say, well, when did you come from Cuba? And I say, well, I've never been to Cuba. <laughs> and they say, well, then you're not Cuban. And I say, well, I'm, listen, I'm a Cuban-American. And I've even gotten into, you know, heated discussions. Because nowadays, identity is something you can put on and off, like like a sweater, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. But nobody wants me to be a Cuban because I'm not sure why. And I try to explain to them I didn't I wasn't born there, but I grew up in in that peculiar sadness. And I think that that's what makes me a Cuban. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, especially if anybody who's a Cuban-American in Miami is surrounded by that that culture in a way that Cubans elsewhere are not. Mm -hmm. You know, I was sent up north very early on. In 1963, and there was a relatively small Cuban community in Chicago where I ended up. It was just not the same as as Miami, not one bit. No, and uh, actually, my high school, everyone in my high school in Chicago had either been born somewhere else, another country, or their parents or grandparents had come from some other country. I had just assumed that, that that was what the entire United States was like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far off. <laughs> well, but then I discovered, no, that's not so. That's not so. You know, there are pockets uh, with high concentrations of this or that. Analogy. Professor, you're, you're a success story. You're an immigrant success story. I think I am too, in a sense. At least I'm, I'm, I'm standing on the, the shoulders of my parents' success and all their hard work, but it was hard too. Cubans are, Cuban-Americans are, are known to be successful. The, the statistics show it, right? In ways that, how do we measure success? I, I mean, there's material ways, but I also think moral and, and, and social ways, right, of, of measure, measuring success. What is it, do you think, about the Cuban diaspora that was so fitted for an American reception? Well, uh, you know, there have been so many different waves 
of Cuban migration. What is most surprising to me is that these quote-unquote successful Cuban immigrant, mm-hmm. uh, you can find them in, in, in all these ways. You know, even the ones that were born after the, the country was ruined tend to do well here. Yes. I think that, it, you know, the, the earlier wave it has a lot to do with the fact that Cuba was a very prosperous nation with a very rich culture. And those who came here in the first few waves, they, they, they were primed to take advantage of all the opportunities offered here in the United States for, for two reasons. One, the older Cubans who came in the first few waves, talk about brain drain. You know, the, the, those who left in the first few waves tended to be among the best educated. And a lot of them were business people to begin with, or professionals in some respects. So they just wanted to regain what they had lost. The younger ones, uh, like myself, who came here as children, we had a very good sense of who we were and uh, of opportunities being offered to us. And we just ran with it. The later successive waves of of human immigrants have succeeded, I think, in large measure because all of the deprivations they've experienced in in Cuba, uh, all the food shortages, all the indoctrination, the the constant harassing uh, of anyone who complains the least little bit about what's awful in Cuba, all of these things kind of primed them in a different way to succeed. Mm-hmm. Because they come here and they realize, oh my God, this is like another universe. Look at this. I, I, I can open my own business, for instance. I can buy an aspirin for my headache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't have to constantly swim against the tide. As a matter of fact, it's a wonderful tide I can swim with here. Mm-hmm. With, you know, in Cuba, there's a law and it's been in place for quite some time, but now they wrote this this new set of laws for Cuba. It's still on the books. It is a crime to enrich yourself. Unless you are part of the, the elite at the top. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. If you're among the elite, that law doesn't apply that doesn't to apply. you. But and, uh, imagine that enriching yourself is a crime. And there's another law on the books, too, that sounds like something from science fiction, which is you can be arrested for potential dangerousness. Potential dangerousness. Yes, yeah. You don't actually have to commit a crime. If they think you're going to commit some crime, usually a thought crime, they'll arrest you. So so Cuba is a state, decades later, still run on the adolescent fever dreams of the Che Guevara, basically. Yes, yeah. Worse than that, it's it's... It's exactly like George Orwell's two novels. Uh, one is a fable, uh, Animal Farm mm-hmm. and 1984. Professor, as a, uh, you're a professor at Yale. You're surrounded by young Americans, the cream of the crop, right? Of, of mm-hmm. young American youth. Young American youth. <laughs> very bad sentence. Um, and they are, they're, they're smart, all of them. Very smart, very well educated. Top high schools. Everything has been poured into them as far as... Um, learning is concerned, they're turning harder and harder left when they have examples around them, like Cuba and Venezuela and North Korea and China, of oppression and and Orwellian laws and, and this current that, that people that, that forget swimming against it. It just sweeps you into oblivion. What is wrong with young Americans that they are able to close their eyes to that reality, in your opinion? <laughs> in my opinion, I you know, I, I, I've given this some thought. The fact is that Politics or political ideology is is a form of religion. Religions are based on beliefs. You believe certain things, and especially in the case of religion, you believe in in things that 
you do not see or you do not necessarily experience with your senses. Political ideology is also a set of beliefs. And this is a form of secular religion that has swept this country. It is now at a point where it is damn close to being the the word cult. The way that's used here in American culture, when you call something a cult, it's never anything nice. It's, it's always got some kind of crazy uh, dimension to it. But the political climate now, which, you know, has the unfortunate name of, of woke or wokeness is like it's not very much different from some insane cult people of a younger age who have grown up here in this very wealthy privileged country they have no clue that they're actually becoming members of political ideology that resembles a cult and and it's a very intolerant cult too that's the worst part about it but it's extremely intolerant what happened uh, last week or the week before at Stanford Law School also happened here last year uh, that someone came to speak and was not allowed to speak because the students shouted them down. As, no a, as a professor facing a classroom of students like that, what is what does that feel like? Do you feel... Well, they don't take my courses. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> no. They select no, out. Uh, they select out of they, your, <laughs> of your classroom. And I, I have so many wonderful students who actually use their brains mm -hmm. and think through things and don't adhere to this cult. Or at least if they do, they don't tell me. You know, the kinds of courses I teach don't attract the woke crowd. For one, because I deal with religion. I deal not just with religion, I deal with Christianity. And I, I deal uh, with Europe and European things and Western culture and Western mm -hmm. civilization. And, and that tends to be considered all very defective, perhaps even evil, by the woke crowd. Do you get any pressure to, to teach it from a critical perspective at well, all? Well, I teach from a critical perspective. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I know what you mean. Oh, I guess uh, I'm, not, I'm probably not explaining myself well. In a sense of, I have several children and they've been going through college for a while in graduate school. And I get the sense, and I, from what they tell me, that it's, they're not, it's very, very often classes are not taught sort of to delve into, into the truth of the matter at hand and to understand but more on, on a critical basis. Where where this where did this person go wrong? Why is it not so feminist? Why is it does that make sense? Yeah. Well, critical race theory is called critical, but it's not actually critical. It's it's some kind of, you know, synthetic web of really at bottom semi-religious or quasi-religious beliefs about Western civilization in general and Christianity in particular as something evil something that has to be destroyed and the quicker the better and for instance my field of specialization early modern european history is dying a very quick death mm. there are no jobs we have many phd students here who were you know trained by me and others in early modern european history and they cannot find jobs there are no jobs for them because universities are pulling away from European history in general, and especially early modern, for various reasons, but mostly because European history is not worth studying, because Western civilization is evil in their eyes. Uh, for instance, just a few years ago, because Yale has so much money, we award prizes to senior essays in the history department. 
There are a lot of prizes. And most of them, however, are in American history, not any other history. But a few years ago, almost, and we have something like 12 or 15 prizes, almost every prize went to senior essays that had in the title of the essay, race, class, gender. Yes. <laughs> yes, I've, I've experienced that with my children. Which I, I call the unholy trinity. Race, class, you gender. Know, it, it, it's a Marxist or crypto-Marxist mm -hmm. way of looking at history as class, race, gender struggle. So what is anyone going to do if they study early modern European history? Well, it would have to be uh, deal with race, class, and gender, but... It's not just that the trinity of crypto-Marxist perspectives that is dominant. There's also the dominant idea or belief that it's better not to study European history. Because you're just studying the the story of the oppressors and the story that That's the oppressor, right. the narrative that the oppressor wants to um, to spread among the around the world, so that they can right. keep oppressing people. Right? We are the the West is the dominant, uh, wonderful force in nature and among man, and then everyone else has to fall in. It's not just uh, you know European history. It's anything that is connected in any way to the past, the real past. You know, I, I was trained as a historian to deal with the past on its own terms. And the, the truth is, yes, the past is full of awful things, but some of those awful things uh, have not continued. So dismissing uh, an entire culture, Western culture, as so severely flawed that it has to be done away with is a great mistake because we have made in western culture we have made great strides forward towards uh you know unethical uh, issues uh, not just technology but on ethical issues great improvements you know slavery has been abolished for instance and, and it was abolished uh, in the 19th century almost everywhere almost but now there are other kinds of, of slavery and 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 they're not wherever there's any kind of slavery human trafficking it's not due to the western culture that practiced the selling and buying of human beings in the past mm -hmm. it's an it's in spite it's in spite of that western culture right mm -hmm. right and um you know i always uh, say that in, in cuba there is slavery. Human beings are not being bought and sold. But, you know, those doctors that are sent abroad, they, they're not much different from slaves because the, the governments, the foreign governments that pay for those doctors' salaries, pay them very decent salary. But the Cuban government takes something like 80 or 90 percent of the pay. Yeah, it's effective and, slavery. And the same is true of the Cubans who work in the foreign hotels mm -hmm. in Cuba. As a matter of fact, there is an NGO, uh, non-government organization based in Madrid, that yesterday uh, denounced the Spanish hotel firms for actually uh, participating in, in slavery, mm -hmm. in slave labor. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, and we could point out that people who to um, uh, go to Cuba as tourists are, in a way, visiting a slave plantation and staying in the big house, right? While everyone oh, around yeah. serves them, it's a it's a harsh it's a harsh thing to thing to say, but it, I well, think we're saying the truth. No, it's not. It, it it's harsh and it's true. You're correct, and it's actually even uh, worse than uh, participating in uh, slave 
the economy. It's apartheid. It's that apartheid. Dirty word. Mm-hmm. The, the dirty word that uh, uh, in the 1970s and 80s uh, made South Africa a pariah nation. The same apartheid exists in, in Cuba nowadays. And it, it there are no signs uh, saying Cubans not allowed, but <laughs> there might as well be because because they're not allowed. They're not allowed, and they know uh, and they know very <clears throat> they know very well where they're where they're allowed to go and where they're not where they're not supposed to go. But Dr. Professor, um, the ostensible reason for this call was <laughs> for this interview is your wonderful podcast. So before we run out of time. Um, tell us about the Christian Mysticism podcast, because I'm le- hearing from you and hearing your whole, um, the beautiful way you express your, your love of Western culture and our, the necessity to connect with our past properly as people, as a, as, a, as a society that has so much to learn from our past. Um, I feel that the Christian Mysticism podcast is a part of that effort. Well, yes, it is, because, you know, um, mysticism um, is a term that is often misused. The, the, our mysticism, pop, Christian mysticism podcast is about the highest claim that the Christian religion makes, which is a very, very uh, potent optimism that human beings can experience another dimension let's put it that way as simply as possible of course in the christian religion that other dimension is the divine Mm -hmm. the assumption uh, behind christian mysticism is that human beings have the capability of experiencing the divine in a very intense way and more importantly of being transformed by the divine transformed by these experiences and transformed in a very positive way mm-hmm. uh, well i was reading one uh, teaching this text today catherine of siena 14th century italian saint and mystic who wrote many wonderful things, but in her dialogues, that's the title of one of her, her texts, the dialogues. Uh, I was just reading this uh, like 15 minutes before our, our, our phone call. Uh, she is saying that love of neighbor grows when one experiences the divine. And that that is one that you cannot have genuine love of God without having love of neighbor. You're transformed. You are given uh, the strength and the courage to be selfless, to live your life for others rather than for yourself. Because you know, I, I had a student once say uh, to me, because I teach a course on mysticism, I had a student say, "Oh, you know these these people we're reading. They're always talking uh, about um, self-sacrifice." Uh, self-abandonment, emptying of self, but they're the most self-obsessed people I've ever read. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and in a way, that's true because this is there's a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. Because you you are discovering that you, a human being, have capacities that are beyond the physical and material world. 
But once you realize that this is this is the the, the at the very core of Christian mysticism is that this is a transformative experience, the experience of the divine. And it makes you an ethical human being whose primary concern is not the self, but others. I feel that you're, you're, you're filling in these blank, these blank spaces in, in Christianity that we have as moderns, I think, and a big blank space thinking that God is something like the great therapist in the sky who's out, who we turn to to make our week because we want to feel good, right? Like that's why we go to therapy and to yoga and those things. But the truth is, with what you're saying, and that we're missing that sense of mysticism, is that we are meant to put on Christ and to put on the divine. And and that's that's something very different from being a good person who does good things and is generally pleased with himself or herself at night when they go to sleep, which I think is what most people think Christianity um, is supposed to be doing for us from one day to the next, if that makes sense. Yeah, or as, as one student said to me fairly recently, uh, she said, yeah, well, you know, I grew up going to church because my parents... Uh, thought that was the best way to meet nice people <laughs> oh yes of course yeah and yeah, because it's well, an it's a nice way to spend your sunday and it's a family time and it's going to make nice your kids are going to be nice and ethical and generally do the do the right things if you bring them to church on sundays that's a, i yeah. think it's a very common way of thinking and um and mysticism is what we're missing so i'm glad you you're doing your podcast i've listened to several episodes they're fascinating and you already have several several episodes think about yeah we, about a, 10. Uh, we, we just recorded um one that will be uh aired actually after easter so uh we've got two as as my partner alberto de la cruz said uh, those two are in the can oh good yes <laughs> that's how we speak in radio and podcasts yeah. So the podcast is called the Christian Mysticism Podcast, exploring Christian mysticism with Dr. Carlos Ayer, I think it's pronounced in English. And yeah. um, it's at shows.acast.com. And I really, I recommend it very much to our listeners. And thank you, Professor Ayre, for joining us. As I think you can tell it was, all of you can tell who are listening, it was a very special, a special interview for me and, and a real treat and an honor to have you on our show. Well, it's an honor for me to be on the show and uh, I thank you for inviting me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father Dave. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, we can't thank you enough for giving us some of your precious time. You have an, an, a very important position, and I'm sure that every second of your day is accounted for as president <laughs> of 
Franciscan University. It must be very hard to get a moment, but no, but you're giving us. It really is. Oh, thank you. You're giving us some of your moments, and really, we wanted to talk to you because you wrote um, a very interesting piece in USA Today, titled "The Body Matters." That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. Now, we we thought that as a university president, you are on the front lines of this Mack truck of gender ideology, which is mowing down everything in front of it, but especially in in academia and in schooling for young people. And so we were really interested in your take. Well, you're right. It is. Uh, it seems to be a train that's moving, and honestly, it's just running over over people. Uh, in this particular situation, I think it's uh, running over women. And, and it, it's interesting. I mean, the story is, I tell the story of one of our female athletes here at the Franciscan University, and she's just a phenomenal athlete. And I was just watching her one day, and she was training, and and just began to wonder, you know, what's this going to look like in another couple of years? There are situations of biological men who are uh, participating in in female sports, and it just there's just something wrong with it. But but actually, honestly, truth be told, uh, she and I first started talking about this over a year ago about saying something and and writing something. And I'm going to be very honest with you: is I was concerned. Uh, for her is that we live in a world that's so volatile and you're, you're right. That train is going down the track and then, and it'll run over whoever gets in the way. And I was honestly concerned about what would it look like for her to compete? Would, would people do things to her? Would people say things to her? And, and because boy, you can't, you can't disagree with that. You can't hold another opinion on this topic or you're the enemy and, and they'll do whatever they need to do to, to try to silence them. And, and, and at the end of the story is, is her looking, I always say looking up at me because she's about five foot nothing. Uh, and she says to me, Father Dave, we have to say something. Some things are more important than racing. And, and that's why when this whole situation came out with the athlete from Penn it seemed to me, all right, this is this is the time that we need to say something. So that's why we did. But Father, um, you bring up a point about being canceled and being aggressed for expressing an opinion that doesn't go along with um, the current ideologies. But what about, Are you wor- does she worry about her life after competition, how she can get a job, if she becomes notorious? Because this is what I'm hearing from uh, young people. Like, I, I have, one, co- I have one, one of my five children is in college now. He says people are very afraid for their future if they get blackballed in college or talked about in college for being um, conservative in any way. Right, right. Well, and again, her her statement was, "We need to stand up." Mm-hmm. And, and this is a girl. It just honestly, again, she's one of the top athletes in the country, and this is simply consistent with who she is. And that's she's tough, she's scrappy, she's not afraid to to work and get dirty and pull up her sleeves and 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 she just sees this fight as a part of it. And my hope, honestly, is it is that it really doesn't become a fight for her. You know. It, it's not, unfortunately, it's not her fight. She's just placed, she's been placed in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Father, I've written a book about this, um, and, you know, I devoted an extensive section to it about women's sports, and this was five years ago, and it's been incredible to see how quickly this has all accelerated. And in your article, you, you know, make the point that Title Nine was designed to protect women's sports and to create a space where women can, you know, compete and showcase their skills against other women. And so, you know, this is really showing how gender ideology 
especially hurts women. Um, and I also thought you did a great job in your piece of, you know, pointing out the need to be sympathetic to people who are truly experiencing genuine confusion and who sure. couldn't in this crazy culture. Um, are, are you seeing this play out on your campus in ways other than sports or, or is it mostly an athletics issue? Well, it's a moment it's across. It's not just, well, first off, I would say bigger picture, it's the identity of the human person. And that's really what I want to try to get across is, is the human person is beautiful. Uh, it should be honored. It should be, we should be awed by that. And it's not just the gender identity where the attack on the human person is taking place. I mean, today with all that's taking place with the abortion Roe versus Wade, there's always, you know, for decades, there's been an attack on the human person. And, and it's not just gender identity. It's what a person should look like. And so we're seeing that across the board. Um, are there, uh, Athletes here that have have been a part of this because they're competing, yes, um, yes, that they've competed against other athletes who are transgendered athletes. Do we have young people who are wrestling with who are they? One of the things I've, I've shared a lot recently is, you know, when we were younger, we asked the question, "Who am I?" But the kids are asking the question, "What am I?" And that's a fundamental different question that it, that relates to them trying to be comfortable with who they are and who it is that God's created them to be. So, yes, our, our kids are walking out of situations in their high schools and in their communities where they're, this is in the front of them, it's constantly bombarding them. And yes, we have kids that are wrestling with this and asking the questions. And, and my hope and my prayer, honestly, is that is that we can help them work through this and help them walk through this and wrestle with it, where the vast majority of people in our culture today says, oh, you have a question? Well, here's your solution. You know, take, these, take this medicine or believe this thing that's I believe is ultimately a lie. So we're we're trying to do our best to equip our young people and our students to really to be able to deal with this and reconcile who they are and who God created them to be. Father, Father, what I find uh, when when I'm when I talk to young people, which I do very very often on this topic. Um, in fact, when we finish here, I'm going to go teach a CCD class <laughs> exactly on this topic for for young teens. And um, what what I'm finding when I speak to them is that there's this opposition between the truth. For instance, that a man cannot become a woman by simply declaring himself a woman or by doing any kind of hormonal or surgical alteration. That's the truth that I think all of us can agree on. And then there is the, the, this, this deep necessity that's been instilled in everyone to never hurt anyone's feelings. And, and that's, what I, that's the feedback I'm getting from students, from young people who say, sure. I can understand that it's not true that a man can become a woman. And that I can, and I can see that it's unjust that a man swimmer should swim against women and demolish them and call himself a woman at the same time. But I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. What would you say to that to young people? Well, it's it, and, and that's where this really becomes problematic is that those two things are ultimately inconsistent. That that you're not going to be able to speak the truth, and people are people are going to be offended by the truth. I, I gave a talk on campus the other night. The scripture last. Thursday, maybe it was Wednesday, was from John. It's a, it's a famous John 3 where for God to love the world. But John goes on to say that people preferred the dark. Mm -hmm. And and that, unfortunately, that's still the case. So that honestly, as, as I've wrestled with this, that's one of the things that I've, I've struggled with is that I know that when I wrote that article and put it out, that there are people that were going to be hurt by it. 
and re- I, I think I think I wrote it fairly sensitively, but I still know that there were going to be people hurt by it. And that's one of the things that some of the comments that people have made. It's like, well, why is Father Dave entering into this dialogue? You know, why is Francis University even commenting on this? Well, because, as you stated earlier, that, that there are some things that are true. And, and as, as Allison said, some things that are worth fighting for and just believe that the time was now that we needed to ultimately say something. And, and just if I may, at that moment, because one of the things that I'm, I'm joking, my next op-ed piece is going to be writing an op-ed piece on writing an op-ed piece, because to be able to have that printed in USA Today was, you know, a major undertaking. And, and some of the things that were required was some of the language. Like, if you'll notice, USA Today has a policy that you cannot use the word biological male. They find that offensive. So we had to be able to, to work with USA Today to even get that article published. But it, it speaks to a population of people that simply doesn't have ears to hear. You know, if the word biological male is offensive, then what are we doing? We have we have to be able to speak the truth. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I feel like, like Allison has been bullied. And I feel like some of the people that have been speaking out is have been bullied. But we live in a world in an age that you're right. You can't speak out. You can't say something. And if you if you do, you're you're a bully. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're a homophobic. You're all of those things that that label us. And by labeling us, trying to shut off the discussion. And I mean, one of the points I come to is 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 this inability to disagree. Now, your point is well taken. That if we don't believe things are true, or if I believe I am the, the determining factor of what's true, that's why these issues become so volatile. Is that we're ultimately challenging them. We're not challenging an objective reality. We're, we're challenging them. And that's part of the problem that we have, I think, in this whole conversation. Shocking to hear that they won't allow the use of the expression biological male. And yet I shouldn't be shocked because I've recently seen things like religious freedom and scare quotes. So we are in strange times indeed. Father, you know, as a Catholic priest, you are more well-versed than most in terms of the richness that the church has to offer when it comes to complementarity of the sexes and, and thinking, you know, the thinking the church has put into this. Um, And I have to say as a convert, it was reading theology of the body that really was something that drew me in. And I think there's a sense that there's a fear that speaking truthfully repels people, but is it your experience that speaking the truth can also draw people in? And I'm curious to know, you know, apart from you writing a very brave piece in USA Today, what else is your university doing to sort of be both, you know, gentle but courageous on this matter and, and other difficult matters of truth? I, I appreciate your comment on theology of the body, because I think if you read that piece, you realize that while I didn't come out and say John Paul II, theology of the body, it's at the heart of it. The body actually does matter. The human body communicates just by its its physicalness. So a human male and a human female communicate differently just because an individual's mind is telling them something, the body still communicates. And, and that's one of the things I was trying to get across, that the body matters. I mean, at the university, that that we've made a commitment time and time again, and, and I told the students when I preached on this topic Friday night, that that we are going to be faithful to the gospel, and we're going to be faithful to the teachings of the church, and we're going to communicate those things. And if that puts us at odds with culture, so be it. Now, I also have said that St. Francis, some of the things that he did in his time put him at odds. So that we're going to do it with charity, and we're going to do it with humility, but we are going to speak the truth. And and I think the, the mandate of the gospel 
demands that we do that. And but again, I, I don't. Again, the scripture reminds us that that the world hated him first, and the scripture reminds us that things that Jesus said. And scriptures come up and they said, "What you said offended us." So some of the things we do and some of the things we say are going to offend people. We need to do our best to do it in charity and and to recognize you know the human person in front of us, but. Sometimes it demands that we speak out, and, and the university's been doing that on pro-life issues. We've been doing it on pro-family issues. We've been doing it on you know issues related to the poor and access to education. So th- this one is is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more inflamed, but uh, yeah, I just think it's what the Lord wants us to do to be able to speak to the things that are, are objectively true, and to the degree that we're communicating that. Ultimately, my hope is that it leads the individual to the source of that truth, right? Not just to an argument or not just to a well-written piece, but to the source of truth that ultimately will bring greater clarity and peace to this whole issue. Father, you've been the president of the university since 2019, um, so it's been a very tumultuous and strange couple of years on many yes, fronts. It has. What have been some of the other top challenges that you've had to deal with, or or what are some of your other sort of greatest concerns or or even triumphs um, over the last couple of years and even looking into the future? Yeah, well, sure. I I think obviously the the COVID crisis and COVID situation was something uh, that it's been unbelievably challenging. The image that I've used, it's it's like trying to juggle sand. But I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are, but one of the things that we did at Francis University was the, the fall semester of 2020, when everybody was trying to figure out, you know, COVID was still re- relatively new, what were we going to do? Francisco University made a decision to invite all new students, all freshman students to the university uh, tuition free, because there was a real step in faith at that time. People just didn't know what this was going to look like. So I said that, you know, we're we're, in, we're making a step in faith that everything's going to go okay and, and work out all right. So we invited the students to make that with us. And, and it was received, as you can imagine, wonderfully that we've got the most students we've ever had on campus right now. But I think part of that was an uh, invitation to not be consumed by fear. You know, I think I think we took COVID seriously and, and we took precautions, but we also were not going to be paralyzed by fear. And and to be able tomorrow, I'm actually the the stage is right outside my window. We're going to have a celebration mass tomorrow. In in an essence, this the end of the pandemic and opening up a new chapter uh, for where the Lord is leading us. So that that's obviously was a serious serious issue. But the other part is just providing an opportunity for young people. I think one of the things that they crave most is relationship and community. So making sure that we provide an, an environment where young people can come together, they can be challenged in, in their intellectual endeavors, but then they can do that in a community that is faith-based. Christ is in the center. The beauty of the church is proclaimed. So that's, I mean, I've got, there, there are days that are really, really difficult, and there are days that are stressful, but I'm just looking out my window right now, and I'm seeing young people walk back and forth to class, and it's a beautiful spring day. It's 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 a great blessing to be able to be a part of this. On the one hand, Father, you, you have tremendous challenges. On the other hand, you have something that supports you that's that I would think it's only a handful of university presidents have, which is a full a full embrace of, of the Catholic of our Catholic faith and, and our Catholic values and our beautiful philosophy that is that is so yeah. placed on truth. Most people don't have this who are in your exalted position, Father. No, I and that's why again I'm so blessed. To be, you know, to be the president of a university, but to be a president of this Franciscan Catholic University, where we have a theology department, philosophy, and professors that 
that embrace the truth and the beauty of the church. We have four masses a day on weekdays that are the chapel, the kids, you know, I, the, the, the mass I'm always most impressive is 6.30 in the morning. All right, you're on a college campus and you go to mass at 6.30 in the morning and you find a couple hundred kids <laughs> on the mass before they go to class. I mean, I get to be a part of that. I'm I'm so, so blessed and, and humbled by our faculty and our staff and our students. I really am. Well, Father, may, may God continue to bless your work. And thank you for, for being so brave and penning that piece in USA Today. Our listeners can, can find it. Um, under his name, Dave Pavanka, and and may God continue to help you in this in this great charge that He gave you. Okay, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spend some time with you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father, and now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you at the end of the Easter octave. So we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us. It's a dialogue that happened on the night Jesus triumphantly rose from the dead. It's a colloquy that reveals Jesus' true priorities, why he entered the world, why he suffered, died, and rose. He did it to impart divine mercy. That's why since 2001, this Sunday, the exclamation point of the Easter octave is called Divine Mercy Sunday. It's because it's meant to help us focus on and enter far more deeply into that great mystery and gift. Late in his pontificate, St. John Paul II, who established Divine Mercy Sunday, was asked what was the greatest problem facing the world. He didn't say the threat of nuclear mutually assured destruction, or global warming, or endemic poverty, terrorism, scandals in the church, or the impact of particular sins that continuously cry out to heaven, even though he took all of these problems seriously. To the surprise of most, he said that the greatest problem was unexpiated guilt. He recognized that after two world wars and a cold war, the Holocaust, the genocides in Armenia, the Ukraine, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and Darfur, after so many atrocities from tyrannical governments, after the waterfalls of blood flowing from more than two million abortions worldwide, after the sins that have destroyed so many families, after so much physical and sexual abuse, after lengthy crime logs in newspapers every day, after the scourge of terrorism, after so much hurt and pain, the terrible weight of collective guilt crushes not only individuals, but burdens structures and whole societies. This collective guilt is only growing as we witness atrocities in Ukraine, in northern Nigeria, in Yemen, China, and in Louisville, Nashville, Hialeah, Half Moon Bay, Monterey Park, Uvalde, and the list goes on. The modern world is like one big Lady Macbeth, compulsively washing our hands to remove the blood from them. But there's no earthly detergent powerful enough to take the blemishes away. We can converse with psychiatrists and psychologists, but their words and prescriptions can only help us deal with guilt, not eliminate it. We can confess our sins to bartenders, but they can only dispense absolute vodka, not absolution, and inebriation will never bring expiation. We can try to escape reality through distractions and addictions, drugs, sports, entertainment, materialism, food, power, lust, and others, but none can adequately anesthetize the pain in our soul from the suffering we've caused, endured, or witnessed. Whether we admit it or realize it, the whole world is longing for redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration of goodness. We're yearning for a second, third, or 70 times seventh chance. We're pining for a giant reset button for ourselves and the world. 
And if we can't have that personal and collective do-over, then at least we ache for liberation from the past, and like the diminutive tax collector Zacchaeus in the Gospel, or Charles Dickens' Ebenezer Scrooge, for a chance to make up for what has been done. We want, need, and pant for atonement. In response to that perpetual, urgent, and ever new need, God responds with mercy. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And so St. John Paul II emphasized, and Pope Francis has continued to underline, that we are now living in a kairos of mercy, from the Greek word that means favorable time or occasion for God's forgiving love. That's what we celebrate this Sunday. The gospel, Jesus walked through the closed doors of the upper room where the apostles were huddling together out of fear and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. Jesus had come from heaven to earth and had given his life to give us peace. But it was a special kind of peace, one the world can't give or take away. The peace Jesus lives and gives is not the mere absence of war or conflict, but harmony with God through the forgiveness of sins. Without this type of peace, no other form can endure because it's sin that destroys interior peace, the peace of the home, the peace of friendship, the peace of communities, the peace among nations. And so Jesus, wasting absolutely no time to set the next stage of his peace plan in motion on the night of his resurrection, divinely empowered the apostles as his peacemakers to bring that gift and the joy to which it leads to the ends of the earth. It's important for us to pay close attention to the various steps Jesus took so that we can understand better the divine foundation of the sacrament of his mercy, better explain it to those like many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, but also some Catholics who claim that they can confess their sins to God alone without the sacrament. Jesus began by saying to the apostles, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. We know that God the Father had sent Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Jesus was sending his apostles to continue that saving mission of mercy. Since we know that God alone can forgive sins against him, Jesus needed to impart to the apostles that divine power. So he breathed on them, as he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them God the Holy Spirit so that they might forgive sins in God's name. Just as we hear every time the priest pronounces those beautiful words in the sacrament of penance, God the Father of mercy through the death and resurrection of his Son has poured out the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus did something that refers to the essential structure of the sacrament of reconciliation. He told them, those who sins you forgive are forgiven. Those who sins you retain are retained. Since Jesus didn't give the apostles the capacity to read hearts and souls, the only way they and their successors and priestly collaborators would be able to know which sins to forgive or retain would be if people told them. And that's what happens in the sacrament of confession. It's so fitting that Jesus established the sacrament of his mercy on Easter Sunday night because he wanted to link the joy of his resurrection to the joy of forgiveness. It pointed to the connection between the two when he gave us the unforgettable parable of the prodigal son. When the lost son returns to the father to give his rehearsed speech of repentance, the father erupts with happiness because he said his son was dead and has been brought to life again. This parable, which is about what happens in the sacrament of penance, points to the truth that every reconciliation is a resurrection. In every good confession, a son or daughter who was dead comes to life again, healed of sins both mortal and venial, and made fully alive once more in Christ Jesus. St. John Paul II established this feast for the Sunday after Easter so that all of us could thank God for the gift of his merciful love that led him to stop at nothing to save us from our sins, from the eternal death to which our sins lead. 
St. John Paul announced the establishment of this feast during the canonization of St. Faustina Kowalska, the humble Polish sister to whom, in a series of profound mystical experiences during the 1930s, Jesus had revealed the depths of his merciful love for the human race and his desire for all people to recognize our need for his mercy, trust in it, come to receive it, and share it with others. We don't have the time to cover this devotion approved by the church in depth, but it features five elements. Stopping each day at 3 p.m., when Christ breathed his last on Calvary to implore his mercy and bring him our prayers, to venerate him in the image of divine mercy by which he, risen from the dead, blesses us and asks us to trust in him, to pray the chaplet of divine mercy, offering God the Father, Jesus, in the Eucharist, and on account of his son's passion, begging him for mercy on the whole world, to pray a novena starting from Good Friday, which we bring to Jesus various groups of people in need of that mercy, and finally, to celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday at the end of the Easter octave when we ponder in the gospel Jesus' establishment of the sacrament of his mercy. Jesus wants us to enter into that gift. At the end of this Sunday's gospel, we have the touching scene when St. Thomas the Apostle, who wasn't present when Jesus first appeared in the upper room, is met by Jesus, who, doubt, who invited his doubting friend to bring his hand and put it into his side and not to go on unbelieving but to believe. It's this pure side of Jesus from which flowed the blood and water that we see in the image of divine mercy, a sign respectively of the sacrament of baptism and of Jesus' precious blood in the Eucharist. Jesus wanted Thomas to enter physically into the mystery of his divine mercy, first received in the sacrament of baptism that wipes away all our transgressions and then reinforced in Eucharistic communion when he received Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Thomas, converted by that divine mercy shown to him by Jesus in the upper room, confessed him, my Lord and my God. On this Divine Mercy Sunday, Jesus, our Lord and God, promised through St. Faustina that all the divine floodgates through which graces flow will be opened. And then he specified two. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. On this Divine Mercy Sunday during the ongoing Eucharistic revival of the Church in the United States, it's a great time for us to recognize the intrinsic connection between the two sacramental floodgates of confession and the Holy Eucharist and to grow in gratitude, love, and adoration for Jesus in both. As we offer to the Eternal Father this Sunday His dearly beloved Son's body, blood, soul, and divinity in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world, we thank Him for His mercy that endures forever and ask Him to pour out that much-needed gift on us, on the Ukraine, on our culture, and on all the globe. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. Thank you.